right. Now, to me, my whole idea of morals is live your life until you start to inhibit someone else, you know, until you start to have a negative impact on other people, which again, negative impact is even subjective. Um, you know, like you could make someone sad for 10 minutes by telling them something. And then if that affects them in the long run to better their life, is that a negative impact, you know? Because they are literally, <laughs> when they're getting in that emotional state or when you're in fight or flight, your prefrontal cortex, your brain shuts down from the front back, goes bang, 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 the lights fucking turn off and all that's left is straight up aggression. That's it. It's get the fuck out or fight or freeze and don't do anything. Yeah. I want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show. I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's, a, that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening, and please enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, and in this episode, Nick Bugle returns. He joins the podcast again, and this time he wants to talk about morality. And this is a broad philosophizing subject, and... It stems around the idea of, is there a subjective or objective morality? And we are joined by Jordan Chris and Joe Joukowsky, all longtime guests on the show. And we meander through this topic and we touch on other subjects or interrelated subjects in this field, including ethics and autonomy and how just in general stress affects other people. Um, and then Joe and Jordan also wanted to discuss the Liam Neeson controversy in person. They had a Facebook discussion and it wasn't going anywhere, so they wanted to do it in person. And so they do it here on the show as part of the wrap up here. In general, this episode is very wide ranging and we talk about many different things and we don't really give a, you know, answer for any of these things because I don't think there is one. But we put a lot of food for thought on the table and we leave a lot of things that you guys can go search on your own. And that's what I really suggest about this episode is go uh, find the stuff like we talked about Jonathan Haidt, Emmanuel Kant, and all these other people and things like that. Check out the show notes. You'll get a lot more information about these different things. So with that, everyone, please enjoy this show with Nick Bugle, Jordan Chris, and Joe Jakowski. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Feeding Curiosity, and we got a big crew today. Actually, this is probably the most people we've had ever in a while. Since the, Ever uh, or in a while? Like, <laughs> ever in well, a while. since, like, episode nine, because that was, like, our highest the amount of people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We had, like, six people around one microphone that was really off-center. <laughs> <laughs> but this time around, we have a mixer, and yeah. everyone's got their own microphone. Holy fuck. It is nice. I know. I love this setup. It makes my life so much better when it comes to doing all the posts, stuff, how, and things. How long have you been using this mixer? For the last four episodes, and we'll, the first episode that was recorded will go live March 4th. So we're going to be doing some of that. I know I hear the hammer, too. Oh, okay. <laughs> I hear in the distance. So either way, it, those of you, I mean, everyone of you have been on the podcast before, but go ahead and say your name so people can... 
I'm Joe Jakowski. I'm Nick Bugle. <laughs> That's. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm Jordan Chris. Hello. <laughs> um, I'm Nick Bugle, and I like to party. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Do you want more caffeine? No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we can go. We can go make it, Joe, if you want to. No, it's fine. You don't have to. Not yet. No. There's beer if you want a beer instead. I mean, I do want a beer. That's part of why I was asking if I should go to the gym beforehand because I was I know, like, I, I, I would actually, really, I really want to have a beer. When we actually, do this yeah, if we're gonna, if we're gonna, right. go ahead. I go, go grab I don't want to unplug these. I'll grab. I'll grab. Jordan's going to. Yeah. Get you guys start. I'll, God All right. Damn. So we got the crew together because Bugle over here has been doing his exploration into all things intellectually driven or philosophical in some ways. Mm-hmm. Why am I in the spot? What's up? I'm just talking. I'm giving preface to our conversation. Cool. And uh, basically, Jordan was saying, Bugle had this awesome conversation about morality, probably about a month ago now. Yeah. And we wanted to do this podcast, but then we had talked about it because you were home around the same time. But you're like, wait, have it when we're, we're back. You know, all yeah, in the same yeah, room again. I was like, I wanna, I and so that that's where mm-hmm. we're at. Cool. Do, we, do you want me to like kind of yeah. go from where I, I started? Would, yeah, yeah I would where, say yeah. lay it out from where you want to go and then um, we can pick up the ball from right. there. Wenzel, here's what we're doing. Right. We're going to be yeah. the worst we've ever been, which is to say we're going to have a beer and then we're going to go to the gym. Sounds good. Thank you, sir. Sounds like the kind of Listen, day I did it in the Marine Corps. I can do it here. <laughs> you know, I don't drink often anymore, so. Yeah, you know, whatever random excuse I want to give myself. Right, yeah, exactly. It's like, well, I feel like having fun today. You need it? Okay, cool. I got it. Let's leave this no, I'm Listen, all that sweet button. sound of beer opening. <laughs> Ta-da. What am I drinking? Looks like an Alpha Fire. King. Alpha King. Yeah. Is that Alpha King? No. Laser Snake? Oh, Laser Snake. Oh, la- of course. Mm. Laser Snake. Dude, I, laser absolutely. Snake. It's so metal. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Oh, I don't know when it doesn't have a bottle. I feel so <laughs> left out. Yeah, you're Clink. crap beard out, man. We got to restock your fridge. Yeah, we do. That'll be next <laughs> weekend. I got you, fam. That'll be next weekend, too, because we're going to be... I'm going to be off for like the first time in forever. Fuck you. <laughs> you know, really, I just want carbs for when I deadlift later. Oh, you know? right, dude. I'm drinking my, my super starch right now, whatever the fuck that's called. There super starch? Yeah. It's like, it's a, like normal starch, but as a cape. <clears throat> yeah. it's, it says SS on it. Oops. Oh, <laughs> I should hope not. No. <laughs> I, was, oh I said it and I... I well, if you've been buying paraphernalia that says SS on it, not super starch. You should probably get rid of those. <laughs> it's definitely not what that is. We're a great, great start to morality right now. <laughs> All right, Bugle, since we derailed that with our beer opening. Hell yeah. Where do you want to start? Um, So we're all focused up. All right. I kind of have some notes on this. Uh, Look at this guy. I just just took some notes after I was thinking about all of it to try and construct it somewhere. Um, So I was talking with a friend, Lindsay, who I'm actually grabbing coffee with after this. Uh, Shout out to Lindsay. Yeah, shout out to Lindsay. And she kind of sat down and was like, hey, no one's ever right in terms of morals. Like there's no moral fact. There's no nothing in the universe that says this is right or wrong. Factually, like there's nothing it's it's all subjective. Everything moralistically is subjective. And so I immediately was like, why? And I was like, there's math. Like I don't know what element it is. I think it's potassium. Like if you throw potassium in water, it's gonna explode. Sodium. If you sodium, there we go. Uh if you add two plus two no matter what language or whatever, as long as two is that relative number, it will always be four. Mm-hmm. Apparently that's when math is zero or something. I had some math major be like, when 
when X is 10 or math is zero. Um, but so those are factual things. And when it comes to morals, why aren't there facts? And so I started delving into like looking back into utilitarian ethics where you have John Stuart Mills literally trying to make math Dang, you went all the way out back. of morals. Well, this is just like something I had learned that I immediately jumped to. And so uh, it's like, you know, he's like, okay, if you murder someone, that's maybe like a plus 30 for you, but a negative 10 for them or a negative 10,000 for them dying. And then, you know, a negative 500 for you being in prison for the rest of your life. So that's a moral math there. And I don't know that I see it as mathematic, but you have uh, Kantian ethics where Kant is saying there is morals ingrained into the fibers of all of us. And those are just set and that's it. And I think that was a little more based. I don't know for sure, but I think that was a little more based off of Christianity, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Well, Kant, there's debate about Kant because Kant... It's Emmanuel was, or... Yeah, Emmanuel Kant. Okay. He was... A lot of people thought he was an atheist, um, but there's some debate about that his talk on ethics was in some sense a means of bringing God back in the back door in some sense. Okay. Um, I don't really know for sure. I haven't gone into Kant with ethics. I went into Kant with metaphysics. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, we can get maybe get into it later, but it'll be kind of askew. But there's Kant has some really interesting things to get into. Um, but so, yeah, I was like, okay, so you clearly have two people trying to like add math or fact or something to morals. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of delved deeper and was like, all right, what makes a fact a fact? The same outcome every single time. Like, you know, two plus two will be four, sodium and water will explode, yada, yada. The same outcome every single time makes it factual. And so where do we start to see that in morals is when you, you start to see that when you have an unquestioned answer. You essentially like, and I jumped to like the Catholic church or Christianity or whatever religion saying like, okay, if you do this, you're going to go to hell. And that is just them saying this. And it's, you have this giant monster of a religion or whatever group or whatever society saying, if you do this, whatever else will happen. And it becomes unquestioned because it's just what it is. It's, it's such a big monster. No one wants to question it. So an unquestioned answer becomes a fact at some point. And I was like, okay, so maybe that's where you like start to see these things break down and then kind of got into the idea of like, well, that's kind of what you see in government too is like, okay, if you speed, you're going to get a ticket. That's just definitive. Like, don't do this. It's bad. And so all of a sudden you have all these like unquestioned things and they're not necessarily, I don't know if putting them in check is the way to say it, um, but they're unquestioned. They become facts and they become almost what a moral standard is. And I don't know. From there, it just kind of like I took this whole loop, talked to a lot of people about it, and eventually just kind of rediscovered democracy. It was like, oh, right. Like you just have to take feedback from other people and find out what is best collectively for everyone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the more heads you have in the pool, the better the outcome. Right. But then there's, you know, I don't know if it's a Republican democracy or what, but there's absolute democracy, which is ruled by opinion and a bunch of people just putting in their opinion instead of having factual backgrounds. Right. So you could have somebody that has no idea about what's going on saying like, no, I think this is what, what should happen. But then in our world, we elect people that have more facts at their disposal to start making up these rules, these moral bases and stuff like that. So it was, it was kind of a bummer. I thought I was like on the verge of something like, not like I was going to discover a new anything, but I was just like, Oh, this is just democracy. When I finally came full circle and it wasn't a bummer in the long run though. Cause it was like, okay, well now I have a whole new understanding on the necessary, like the need for the separation of church and state, because like, you know, you have a Catholic society defining the laws how many hundred years ago, and you'll still see a lot of those things playing in. And just, you know, the need for maybe better practice in democracy, too, and better representation and better informed <coughs> citizens and stuff like that. So that's where those all kind of came from. Dope. 
There's a lot there. Yeah, there's a lot there. You, lot. you went through the whole whole not the rabbit hole. There's more if you want. <laughs> there's, there's always more, right? Because I'm, I'm sure that now that you've yeah, figured was, this out, this is, you have a billion kinda, other questions that yeah. you want to figure out. Just kind of jumbled that all together, but um, yeah, I don't know. Somebody I mean, we could keep expand. going on that. Yeah, I can expand. Yeah. <laughs> I know you. Cool. I can yeah. lay the whole thing out if you want. <laughs> do it, Joe. Do it. So I think that I don't take a Kantian view, though. It probably can't almost definitely informed this. So I take a Petersonian pragmatic view on what morality is and what we mean by morality is something like the most functional behaviors over the longest period of the time for the most number of people. So, and the reason that that's the way that it is is because you have a bunch of people in the beginning that all exist within a social world. And I'm calling them people, but this is an evolutionary thing. So this happened before our species even exist. Is that there's a social world that exists that you have to work in. And, and you have to work in it in order to survive and perpetuate the species. So there's a certain number of behaviors that arise that are more likely to allow you and the group to perpetuate through time. And that those behaviors, the ones that are most functional, are the ones that continue. So those behaviors get passed on passed on. But it's not just a set of behaviors by one culture that there's as tribes amalgamate through history, they bring their virtues with them. And you can actually see this happen in the um, historical record. When we were in, when me and Jordan were in um, in Bath in England, there was a uh, Roman bath there, but they had a, like a temple portion that had a god named Sulus Minerva. And that's actually two different names, Sulus and Minerva. One was Roman and one was the... Uh, I want to say Saxons or Celts or Celtic, yeah, whatever, like whatever it was, Celtic God. early Britons. And what they did is that these gods are representative of a, a, a moral system, of a framework of behavior, and that they are in and of themselves a representation, an iconic representation of a moral system. And then when they come together... They amalgamate, and then some things fall off, and some things come together, and they make a stronger representation of that moral framework. So you don't just have Sulis or Minerva anymore. You have Sulis Minerva, and it's a new god in and of itself. But it contains multiple dimensions of moral behaviors. They get passed through time. So not, not only are the behaviors evolving, but the representations and the way that we interpret those behaviors and express them symbolically evolves along with it until eventually you have a omniscient god, a monotheistic god that contains all the gods who say, fuck it, mm -hmm. all of them are in here. We're all going to do this. This is the best thing for all things at all times, whatever. All powerful, all seeing, all loving, all whatever. All that's there. But that's just the representation of religion in some sense. But the reason that these behaviors kind of bubble up to the surface so that we can witness them in the first place is because they actually produce the most favorable outcome for the most number of people and continue to do so hmm. so long that they continue to be perpetuated throughout time. Hmm. Culture after culture after culture hmm. says, yep, this still works. We'll keep running yeah. with it. So the, the example that I was given that kind of like spurred all this and the idea that no one's ever right was one of my friends had was in public and a person came from a culture i don't want to like get too specific i don't know mm -hmm. a person came from a culture where typically women are respected less than men and they she wanted to get mad about it you know she was like why why do you disrespect me like we're equal people why don't you see that in your culture 
and that's where this like discussion kind of arises that like in the long run no one's ever right like subjectively you know or objectively no one's ever right now to me my whole idea of morals is live your life until you start to inhibit someone else you know until you start to have a negative impact on other people which again negative impact is even subjective um you know like you could make someone sad for 10 minutes by telling them something and then if that affects them in the long run to better their life is that a negative impact you know not that that's at all the same as disrespecting someone because of their gender but i don't know it just kind of grew from there so you know jumping from culture to culture in a monotheistic idea it's like saying this works but you see different in this rep in this reference point like different levels of feminism amongst different cultures like there's a total difference between 1980s African feminism versus like right now American feminism. It's like completely right. different, you know? And like, I read a book on like mid eighties, middle Eastern feminism that like would probably make a lot of people mad now, you know? And so it's, a, it's an ever growing thing. And just the idea of it, like from culture to culture, jumping and growing, but saying it stays the same. So and works. do you want me to address the idea of there being no objective morality? Because it sounds like this, is be, the, the lack of objective morality creates only subjective reality. That subjective reality makes everything relative. So then you have relative yeah. cultures, and then exactly. that's the problem, right, that we're getting at. I don't think that's true. And mm -hmm. I think that that's not true because, um, one, I don't think it works. That the moment that you disconnect it from some kind of objective reality and everything becomes subjective, then you have no means of judging what's right or wrong at all. And, the whole, and then everything be, doesn't become good or bad. It's not that you can't tell what's good or bad that there isn't a good or bad it's that it's there's so many opinions that since each, each individual can have their own subjective opinion then what right does one individual have to say that what you're doing to me is bad so i can murder you or like be about to murder you you're not dead yet and you say you're fucked up you're doing something wrong and i can be like no not by my opinion mm -hmm. and since we have equally valid opinions then what right does the state have to throw me away what right what right do you have to throw me away i was doing what i thought was right and you were you're doing what you think is right. And you might have yeah. turned out on the side that you didn't prefer, but so be it. But I think that that whole thing falls apart in the beginning. Because <laughs> yeah. I can work back from in the other direction, which is that the reason that things adapt is that they're adapting to an environment. So that there's something in the structure of reality that makes things more or less functional. So if I have gills on land that's not functional but it's not because gills are good or bad it's because there's an actual environmental factor mm -hmm. there and that i can't breathe without being in the water in that case and then that's it but i think that the reason that there are functional behaviors is because in the underlying environment there is something in reality that we can't directly witness but produces objective moral behaviors mm -hmm. cool yeah, I also just want to preface, I have, like, no dog in any fight. I'm just like, really interested to talk about this with anybody. So, like, nothing <laughs> I say, I have any, like, right. like, this is what it is. Right, right. Um, but, no, like, oh, what did you just say? You want to recap all that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no. So, again, that kind of, like, brings me back to your latter portion, brings me back to, you know, absolute versus republican democracy of like someone having facts and offering insight to citizens versus all the citizens having an opinion right mm -hmm. um gills on land like if you're like if there's so many opinions that people have out there that objectively i'm like heck yeah but a lot of people are missing a lot of information all the time it's like okay you killed someone and that's terrible why would you take someone's life well that guy was about to kill 500 people 
So maybe one life for 500 yeah, is a I, different moral dilemma, right? Not that that's ever really happening. but And then the first thing you said, too, kind of brings me back. I can't remember why specifically, but brings me back to, like, Kantian ethics then. Like, the main thing is, like, Kantian ethics works, but it's very, very selfish. So so the, the thing that I was set up to, like, to really challenge Kantian ethics is this idea, like, okay, you're sitting at home and someone knocks on your door. And it's a guy that says, hey, someone's going to come kill me. I need you to hide me. So you hide this guy. And all of a sudden the killer says, hey, some neighbors pointed out that the guy I'm trying to kill is in your house. Now, what do you do? What, what would you guys do in this Tell scenario? Tell him to eat a dick. Okay. Right. All right. Which is why... Right, it's on the list. <laughs> can't say that. Can't, that can't, that's the paraphrase. Quote. That's right. the quote. Die, dick, sir. <laughs> I've read that somewhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he um, was... A print a virtue ethicist, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like he thought that there was a hand, and again, I haven't mm-hmm. read Kant's ethics stuff, but yeah. um, from what I understand is that he had a hand. He was like Aristotle in that there was a handful of things that are that are right, and period. That, yeah, mm-hmm. that you don't lie ever. Period. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Which is, I think, what you're getting at. Yeah. So, but why? Why not lie? Like, what would you do in this scenario? Would you tell the guy he's in your house? Would you fib? Would you selective disinformation? Like what? Probably the selective. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's what I was leaning towards. I, like I saw him. So that way. yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, hold on, lock the door and go call. Yeah, the cops. yeah. But, yeah. Let me just pause you. In my opinion, I would probably. <clears throat> I don't know if I would do this. I don't know if I would do this for sure. But I could see a lot of people not letting the initial guy even in the house in the first mm-hmm. place because yeah. it's like kind of like I don't even want any just part of this problem. I don't opt know out of the situation. Right. I don't know where that lies in whatever. Yeah. Philosophy. I don't know why he's trying to kill you either. Like maybe right. you wronged his family. Yeah, is he going to kill me too? Type mm-hmm. thing. Like yeah. I just mm-hmm. don't want any part of that. So absolutely. But, yeah. uh, well, so Kant, the, Joe's correct that you never lie in Kant's eyes, but the reason why is what really got to me about it, and it's not. Like, because of it, basically the whole thing breaks down to never compromise your own morals. Now, you could save the man's life that's hiding in your closet or wherever in your house. You could save him, but at the risk of compromising your own morals. So don't let that man go kill the guy hiding in your closet so you don't compromise your own. Now, to me, letting someone kill someone else compromises my morals. But to Kant, lying is equal to every other sin. Malady, Lying whatever. is the, the paramount or the pinnacle. No, of? they're they're all. There's no difference, and oh. that's so the polar opposite is like again. John Stuart Mill's is like okay, you're adding math to that. Is like what's better, and it's 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 um, empathetic. It's it's way more like you're trying to understand someone else's point of view. But in Kant's eyes, all of these things are you you die before you commit any atrocity or any like lying is as bad as murder in his eyes. Essentially, in the scenario. Let someone else compromise their own morals before you compromise yours. Never, ever, ever compromise your integrity, even if it's for the betterment of something. So. Thoughts? I don't want to hog it. I'm still, I'm, <coughs> I'm new to all this. So I'm like wrapping my head around. <laughs> yeah. Talking. Also, like, I don't know. Like the bigger thing too is like, I, I guess the reason I'm even interested in all this is like, not that I've been the most empathetic or moralistic human throughout my life. Um, but one of the things that I have always held true to is just that I think empathetic intelligence is one of the highest forms of intelligence. And I'm sure there's a bunch of other like jargon ways to say that. Um, and then there's the difference between empathy and sympathy and everything like that. But at the end of the day, I think empathetic intelligence is, to me, has just always been the most important form of intelligence. And I never really knew why. I was like, okay, there's people out there curing cancer. There's people out there doing this. And you can even say like someone curing cancer is being empathetic to someone with cancer, right? 
Um, but like scientific intelligence, whatever other form, poetic intelligence, for some reason for me, in the back of my head, empathetic intelligence has always been up top, no matter what. And I think the reason I'm so interested in all this is particularly because I don't know why. And then like, I even recently watched like a documentary on Ruth Bader Ginsburg and I was like, pragmatic applications of empathetic intelligence. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, but I don't, I don't know if that helps. Right, anything. so you're trying to figure out the why. Well, well, I can probably psychologically answer why the empathy part is that. It's temperamental is what it comes down to. Is that um, you can do, and Jonathan Haidt did this work, um, or at least were I can't remember what book it was. Um, anyway, um, that there are five dimensions of morality generally and that what they depend on is – how do I say this? So they are – four of them are prevalent on the left, five of them are prevalent on the right, and one of them is a purity dimension. That's the one that fluctuates. So that's the one that gets left, left out. <clears throat> that seems to me to be um, – a consequence of personality that I'll stick with purity, that moral dimension. It just makes this whole conversation easier. That that seems to be a consequence of personality. That you, if you're high in orderliness, you care about purity, and the purity is the is something like bordering in something from outside contaminants, and that that's what purity is. Uh -huh. Now that happens in a. It's it. I'm using a body metaphor, right? It's like. I don't, it's, it, it's like the incoming germs or whatever, and you're pure if you're not infected. But that happens on the social level too, like moral purity or whatever, and that that exists. But I think that that morality come, emerges out of personality differences, mm -hmm. and that what morals you think are the most important are the consequence of your temperament, and that your temperament in part is genetic. So there's a heritable estimate to all of this. I forget what the number is, but we could just say for rule of thumb, 50%. So 50% of your morality is made up out of the, or we should say 50% of your personality is genetic and a good portion of your personality influences your moral stance. Mm -hmm. So the reason that you might think that empathy is the number one thing is just personality. It's just a personality difference. Now, which is fine, whatever. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, no, which is yeah. why I think that we actually evolved to have a huge number of personality variants, mm -hmm. is so that you could have more people covering more space yeah. with different ideas. That's that, that you yeah. just throw the widest fucking net you can because mm -hmm. you don't know what's going to come through. Yeah, that. So, I'll kind of circle back to like Buddhism with that in a sense of like that that broad array of personalities is you know again i'm not like a practicing buddhist but i really like a lot of the ideas that i'm able to draw and i really respect the culture and you know this idea of we're all little bits of the universe which is why there's always this imbalance of like okay i belong to something which is why we strive for like you know romance and we're a little codependent in that sense but also you know we knew at one point we were a whole and we want to belong to that whole again, but also we like the idea of individuality and being an individual because it's so different from being a part of the universe. But collectively, that whole idea is just really to guide, for me, why I'm bringing that up, is to guide the fact that being individuals is just the way to experience the universe in every way possible. We're all the universe experiencing itself. So you have, like, let's say, just a strawberry. You have someone who knows what it's like to absolutely love strawberries. You have people who knows what it's like to grow strawberries. You have people who know what it's like to absolutely hate them. You have people on the other side of the world that have might never seen a strawberry. And so you just, a strawberry alone, 
billions of views on strawberries. And it's just a collective idea on what every potential possibility about how you could feel about a strawberry. And so then you see that within personality and just like a million one ways to experience the universe. You could be a warlord or you could be someone who plants roses in their garden. And that's just the universe experience itself. And this like collective conscience feeding back into high contrast, every possibility kind of thing. It's like it's running a simulation. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> End it now. End everything. <laughs> <laughs> I just blacked out. I don't know what I just said. How's it going? <laughs> you just say that after every sentence you say? Pull up, pull up, pull Yes. That's I mean, my answer. Yes. I totally agree with that statement. And it's like the more I get into just into ideas in general, it's everything we, we talk about is on a spectrum of possibility slash probability so regardless of whatever i mean that's why these conversations even take place it's because the idea that things are cut and dry this or that is not a thing mm -hmm. basically right. um and so being able to talk about them is is ways of working through it because they're just so complex and convoluted i mean we just went back to what 1800s by quoting kant and yeah <laughs> or, no earlier than that er, earlier than that 1700 so yeah so we're like 300 years in the past and we're still talking about what they wrote about these topics <laughs> so it's saying something at the very least and we already quoted even further back with aristotle so that's mm. greek times um it's to me the, the one thing that kind of going against the ethics part not against ethics but ethics for the first time ever at least because of the way coding has become developed is it's going to actually have real life application within how we develop programs going forward. Um, take or autonomous vehicles, for instance, it's going to have to do that moral math where it's out of control and it has to make a decision, either hit one person or mm. drive into a crowd. And that has never been an actual real life application until now. Well, this is, this is the exact reason that I'm, this whole thing we've talked about right up until this moment is exactly the reason why I'm terrified about AI. Yes, I agree. And the reason, okay, so let me lay this out for a second. If you have, if you have an infinite number of facts, you have to minimize those facts into a comprehensible section of those facts in yeah. which you can act upon. And how you organize those things depends on the value structure that you put in. So I decide to be here for this podcast instead of the literal infinite number of things I could be doing instead of this because I value this podcast more than those things. So you need a value structure in order to, to determine how to act. So when we're programming AI, you have to program in how it's going to act. So you need a value structure in order to tell the AI which things are more valuable and therefore things to act upon. Yeah. What freaks me out is that if you have programmers who are determining the value structure for these infinitely powerful machines that are coming and they fuck it up, then we're, we're screwed. That's why they, because if they have a faulty morality that, uh, or have a, they might not even know it. They might just know that they might just be going out on a limb saying like, well, that seems good enough. And they're just not aware of the consequences, the unforeseen consequences of the idea that they had about what's right and wrong. Yeah. That when it's taken to the extreme by that AI, that can self-generate and learn faster and move faster and develop faster than we could ever, like a thousand times faster than we can, it can think a thousand times faster than we can. So that means that, Jesus, 
yeah. a thousand times faster. Right. It's going to move than us. I mean, you, you have that to optimize. It will, reach, it will reach so many conclusions that we didn't predict that could be negative as a consequence of just not having thought it through. Yes. And fuck it, we're screwed. Ooh. Especially <laughs> if you end up with a, an ideology that exists within the programming world, like the Silicon Valley type. I mean, we all know it. Which is a thing. <laughs> and if they program that ideology right into the machine, and then the machine moves, then forget it. Because right. it's operating on bad assumptions. This is called the paperclip problem, too. Where I've it's heard like, that one. so the paperclip problem is we design an AI that's entire purpose is to make paperclips to the best of its fucking ability. We oh, want paperclips. Okay. We're running out of fucking paperclips. We need more now. Quick, make paperclips. Hmm. Well, what if the AI decides, you know, all these people are getting in the way of me making paperclips. So it kills the whole human race just so that it can keep making paperclips. Mm-hmm. The that's the problem. That right there. Ever. How, how does it kill them? Ooh, slowly. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, that's, that's, that's immoral. Never mind. Oh my it God. Turn, it just bends them until they're paperclips, mm-hmm. and then it's like, ah! First off, as someone involved in office supplies, I dig that. Can like we that. tell you this nice and slow? Yeah. <laughs> Do we have any, like, bounce chicka wow music? No, there? not really. No. I mean, like, all, I can, all I can do is hit him with... <laughs> that's the best we got. So best I got it on hand. It is a bugle, so I'll take it. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, laying out that scenario is, I think, super important. And this is the first time ever that there needs to be a role for, lack of a better term, practical ethicists, where these these ideas, these thought, quote-unquote thought experiments need to be, you need to have a basically a software company that's hiring people with high-level ethics and going through and being like, is your code safe, period? Like... Mm-hmm. Being able to understand these high-level concepts. And not only that, how the fuck do you code something like that into it? Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's got to have, like, remember um, iRobot? Yeah. When they I forget the rules, but there's a handful of rules. And I know one of them was something around you can't harm a human. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an impossibility in some sense that, you know, when we haven't been able to do it, right? As mm-hmm. the human race has gone forward, even non-intentional harming happens, right? Yeah. So an AI is not going to be able to hold that up, but if you create and that's i think the purpose of ideals too is that if you create that ideal for the robot then its entire purpose is to mitigate Mm -hmm. toward like mitigate the things that could break that yeah they could go up against it so you need to program in something like the autonomy of the individual into an ai system yeah like it's so like some real life examples like i'm working with a collaborative robot right now at work it's like four feet tall and it does like a programmed set of things it's scanning your strength no strength. not even close <laughs> it's not that smart yet but like it's it, it, it's it, gonna it, fuck you up as soon as it's a chance <laughs> don't turn your back on it <laughs> i mean like the crazy thing is like it's programmed to do this very specific group of steps and like it gets stuck on simple things like it can't error correct outside of its you know what it's programmed to do but it does what it's programmed to do really well already um and I'm like watching this thing work, and I'm just kind of like, this is crazy. Because like you, if you just add a little bit of error correction onto it, it makes me obsolete. Like I'm only there because I have to make sure it keeps running, or certain other things, you know, X factors that it doesn't know how to fix because it just doesn't have that ability yet. But it's not far away from being able to do that yet, and it's crazy. And it, you know, it's like when you get to these like this level, like we're at this, you know hockey stick junction is what they describe it within like 
advancement or um, basically we're at this pinnacle where right here, if you look at a graph, we're about to hit a logarithmic just spike, like, you know, 99%, just pew, go off into some new direction that, you know, whatever you call it, you know, industrial revolution is what was, you know, back in the 30s or 20s. In, we're at a whole different era of that now. If we at, at this juncture, basically, because and it's really up to us to decide how this plays out, good or bad. I'm afraid we're just gonna f- because if we fuck it up, <laughs> we won't know how hard we fucked it up until we're already until getting, it's until too we late. are experiencing think, the consequences. <laughs> I think you've already kind of answered my question here, um, but it's kind of about ulterior motives. Um, and it kind of steers back, or like, I guess, I guess essentially as humans, everything we do has motives behind it. And, you know, there's people that are manipulative. There are people that only want to step on the backs of others to get gains. And there's other people that like, you know, but no matter what you do, if you're being charitable, it's maybe for you and to nourish yourself and your soul and all that. Um, you're always doing something for you at the end of the day. It's, that's just kind of what it is. And so I like first thought about it with like a doctor. We're like, okay, you go to the doctor to get better. You're placing your trust in them. And they have ulterior motives because it's their job, because they probably care about their patients or whatever. But they could also, you know, there's doctors that do take bribes from pharmaceutical companies that Mm -hmm. say, okay, if Mm -hmm. I give enough of these prescriptions out, I'm going to get to go to Bermuda. That's awesome. And so now you're going to your doctor and you're placing trust in them saying, okay, I trust your ulterior motives when theirs might not be just, and it could be at the risk of your health. And at the same time, too, there is a bound outside of ulterior motives, which kind of might play into, like, us just not understanding when we code these things. But, like, the idea, like, a doctor decades ago, or even right now, let's say there's some cancer treatment that we're using that we are not, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. It puts patient through hell and it hardly ever kills any cancer cells, but we're still doing it because it's the best we know. And with a lack of understanding of the endocrine system, maybe it's just that one day if we lower certain hormones in our system, it could help kill off cancer cells. And we just don't know that yet. And that's not even an ulterior motive thing. It's just that we don't know yet. So the idea of again, coding something without knowing, but we could screw everything up, but also I guess with ulterior motives and knowing that that's a thing, I just give that background to, give where my head comes with that will these robots have ulterior motives and i think you kind of got like the idea is ai becomes sentient ai has a mission but is it is it an ulterior motive is it self-interested or is it just the mission that's been even, given to make paper clips and kill people well it might not be conscious yeah i was gonna say i don't yeah, think it'd be sentient i think it's just following its program and it just optim like it's just trying to solve its program problem mm-hmm. in the most efficient way yeah it might not even be self-aware yeah i mean how you tell me that I'm self-aware is, you know, <laughs> or that anyone else has some interior world other than your own is a problem. So how are we going to tell with the computer? Who fucking knows? So it could the, it could look as perfectly as if the lights are on and not have the lights mm-hmm. on. And it could also, even if the lights are on, I suspect that it will have an unconscious. That it will do things that, because there's so many things that need to be done in order for it to to work, that to have all that information readily available to its attention would be an overriding of its intention altogether. That there's just too much shit happening that you can't consciously attend to one thing that you need to attend to while having all that information flowing through. Mm-hmm. So it'll just have that, all that in the unconscious. I mean, that's what our body does, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't need to be aware of my digestive system. And the reason that I'm not aware of it is because 
I don't fucking need to be. Like, if it can run on its own, then that's what your brain does. If your brain doesn't need to know it, it doesn't even. It limits limits inputs. Mm-hmm. Oh like, yeah, your entire. We have more. Primates have more inhibitory neurons than any other species, and humans have more inhi- inhibitory neurons than any other primate. So out of any species that ever has existed, yeah. as far as we know, we inhibit mm-hmm. our brains more than anyone else. And the reason yeah. for that is to limit the sheer quantity of insane information that exists. Because there are an infinite number of facts. Yeah. An infinite number. Yeah. Like so a really, how do you know which ones you tend to? A really good you know, example of that is, is like eyesight. So basically, your brain is making assumptions about what it sees at any given moment using the smallest quantity of information to make sense of that. So like any of those like mind puzzles where like those eye, those puzzles that play tricks on your eyes, that's basically showing you where like the limitations of the information or the assumptions your eyes make, your brain's making from the information your yeah. eyes take in. Um, just to show how that's working basically in the background that we just take it for granted that what we're seeing is actually true in some way or not an, a, an approximation. Should, should there be something to be said about so again, going back to like objective morality or objective best practice, you have staple experiment or paperclip experiment. Paperclip, yeah. Um, hypothetically, uh, the machine recognizes, okay, I can't make, I can't fulfill these orders with all these dang humans around, and it wants to go kill all the humans to get back to work in peace. Is there something to be said about that, like? understanding of other facets of a scenario in guiding its quote unquote moral guidance. Like just again, the fact that like a lot of people formulate opinions about something that they never might think about in the background. They're you're like, you know, like, Oh, this is what it is. It doesn't matter. Like people are like, Oh, it's just going to make paper clips. But in the machine's head, it's saying, okay, well, humans are a completely different facet that no one ever factored in, and I have because I'm a robot or something like I don't, I don't know how a robot thinks. I'll be honest. Um, beep, boop, beep. That's how it goes. <laughs> zero one one. Um, but so it's it's essentially factored in the idea that humans are irrelevant in this scenario, and if anything, a distraction. And so, how often do we formulate opinions or morals around lack of understanding, or? You know, like I don't, I don't know how I don't. Know. I mean, we definitely do. I mean, we we absolutely. In fact, it's how would I say this? A consequence of our limitation is that we can't actually produce a perfect morality. Right? Not yet. You can't do it, and well, not yet. Right? <laughs> That's and the reason for that is, is again because shit. there's too much stuff. Yeah. There's too much, too many things to factor in. Well, you also have like movies to like play out uh, again. It's people's own hypotheticals, but like you know, I don't know what it is. Where I think it's like Tom Cruise, uh, my Minority Report, or something mm-hmm. like that. Where you, they can tell you're going to commit commit a crime before you do, so they just oh, bust yeah. in and yeah, kill yeah. you anyways, you know, or lock you up in some yeah. giant jelly lab. <laughs> um, but is that moral too? To just you know cage everybody? I don't know. Well, before I mean, they've done anything, yeah, yeah. I was going to say that's, that's. I mean, that's been a moral problem for a lot of people is can you say someone's going like even if you know someone's going to do this bad thing can you really count them out before that thing actually happens mm-hmm. well, and is it bad i don't know if that hypothetical is bad or not that's tough i mean that's yeah. why we make art i think that's what art is that yeah. what art's intent is is to figure out the problems that we don't understand that it's that art is an imagistic representation. It's like right there on the boundary. And we just like, what the fuck? I can't even formulate this problem with my words. And there's a technical reason for that. It's because 
the imagistic part of your brain is older than the linguistic part. So you start processing oh. lower. So mm-hmm. it's like you have to think imagistically before you can think linguistically. Isn't that also true for auditory, right? Uh, that it's what part that it's older or newer than the imagistic. Maybe not more. I guess more adapted is what I'm getting at. Like you'll, you'll understand something you see quicker than something you hear. You'll definitely. Yes. You'll definitely see things. You'll see things that you don't even know you see and you'll react to them before you even see them. Because your nervous system can operate on its own. Too, or your... Sympathetic. Your, right. Below the fucking neck can operate on its own. Your spinal cord can do what it wants and doesn't actually need your brain in some sense. So you'll... If it's, there's, you'll like react. You'll shift. You'll jump in your chair during a horror movie before you've registered that you've seen the thing that made you jump. Because there's as soon as that information comes into your eyes, it's bang. You're it's already at your spinal cord. It's it's moving. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> so, oh, that got me so stoked on something. Um, this could be a very dumb idea, but I'll play it out. So that idea that your spinal cord can operate on its own if it thinks it's for the betterment of the body, right? Mm-hmm. Does that not make it its own kind of AI? Like it's not your decision. Like when I would skateboard and stuff, there would be times where I would like be in the middle of a trick. And be like, oh my God, I'm going down. <laughs> this, I'm about to end my life. And then by sheer luck or something in the back of my body with muscle memory, I would land a trick and roll away at whatever miles an hour and be like, eyes closed. Like, how did that happen? And like, I, like, I'm not splattered all over the ground. And to, to, like, I would constantly discredit myself with that too. I'd be like, I didn't land that trick. That wasn't hmm. me. I didn't do that. Like, it's just like, it's my body that did that for me. Something right. old, you know, I don't know. Is there something there? Well, that's what, yeah. I mean, there is something there. That's what's so fasc- fascinating about the, if you really want to dive into human experience, and like take a moment to meditate and think on this, you'll recognize that the majority of the behaviors that you make are unconscious. That for the most part, even decisions that you make that are socially done, you're like, I did this because of this reason. The this reason part of your brain is a small part of your brain. It's the prefrontal cortex. It's thinking and the parts of your brain that think yeah. linguistically, right? You you have come up with a, a thin veneer over your motivations. Yeah. That there is an entire – there is literally an entire brain system that exists that we evolved off of, that we built structures on top of, that has operated for millions of years without any language and without any awareness of self. Mm-hmm. And that's – it's not that we – evolution – what's it called encephalization that which is the process of the brain evolving doesn't happen and that it takes old structures and replaces them with new ones it evolves out of them it builds on top of it so those we're not just you're not just a human being you are a human being and you're all ancestral past that has come before you Mm -hmm. that structure still exists within you so you're there that's why they say you have a mammalian brain you have a reptilian brain right because those portions still exist in reptiles even today. And that reptile brain is still moving in, in some sense autonomous, mm-hmm. though it's lost a lot. And how do I say that? It's like it's lost its autonomy. Like, yeah, the word. It's, it's, lost it's lost its autonomy because yeah. our, pre, our cortex shot, basically shot neurons down yeah. into the whole system so it could have more control directly. So we have more control yeah. for that stuff. So. But, but the point is that there are there is a reptilian brain, there is a primate brain that has reasons of its own operating within you. Yeah. So that when you experience something or you do something, or this person fucking made me angry, or this happened, or whatever yeah. this happened, yeah. those are reflections of an ancient past, an old brain thinking itself through, yeah. and that you're just hanging out watching it. So 
Yeah. A lot of the reactionary things. Yeah. The, More it, than that, it's it's straight up your entire emotional system. Right. That's what I mean. Like reactionary things. Like the, 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 that knee-jerk reaction when it's, something It's not happens. even just knee-jerks. It's long-term emotional stability. Like temperament? Oh, yeah. Your personality. I mean, any kind of emotional feelings you have, your limbic system is older than your prefrontal cortex. Oh, that makes sense. So you... Your emotions are ape emotions. Mm -hmm. That's what it comes down to. That's why you see people acting like fucking lunatics out there. You're like, you're like a fucking animal. Like, mm -hmm. what are you doing? Because they are. Because they are literally, <laughs> when they're getting in that emotional state or when you're in fight or flight, your prefrontal cortex, your brain shuts down from the front back. It goes bang, 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 bang. The lights fucking turn off and all that's left is straight up aggression. That's it. It's get the fuck out or fight or freeze and don't do anything. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that, I'm glad Damn. you got into that. <laughs> Maybe not morals, but again, I think the idea of morals is, is it correct? Is it appropriate, right? So you have scenarios. If you're confronted by a puma, you're going to go into fight or, fight or flight. Mm -hmm. If Janice from work hands you a huge stack of papers and you're kind of stressed and that skyrockets you, you're still going to go into fight or flight. Yeah. I don't know what connection to draw from this, but you know, your body's idea of appropriate or correct. Like, did you need to go into fight or flight? Like that's going to mess up your caloric, caloric, caloric intake. And your metabolism and your stress levels and cortisol and all that. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're pulling in some really new did science your, by saying that, by the did way. Did your body make that right decision? I don't know like, where your that body, can be taken with morals, but again, like, I, maybe that's just we're the same way. Your know. body makes a right decision, not the right decision. That's true. It's that your body's stupid. It's constantly ready. It, mm -hmm. it thinks that it would, if, if it makes the right decision for the situation, it thinks that it's in which is that it's a fight or flight situation mm -hmm. that you're about to fucking die. Yeah. So it makes a decision. It makes the best decision it can. And that's it. That's all it can do. Mm -hmm. But it's not a very, I mean, it's smart in its own right, but it's not smart. Like we're aware of it. Right. Yeah. So there's two things to speak to there. One is that you actually have to, this is why I don't like coddling is because if you, if it's, the most stressed it's pronounced cuddling, Oh, well, I mean, that I'm fine with. <laughs> but, but that's why I don't like coddling is because if the most stress you've ever been subjected to is like not winning a football game mm -hmm. or worse, like, I don't even know. Like, there, people, I can't even think there are of kids these words. days that straight up grow up in, in leagues where iPhone nobody wins. dies and they have to walk two right. doors down instead of ordering an or they forget home. or like, they I forget their my charger they Whatever forget the fuck, a charger right, right? <laughs> if that's what it is you have just made it very thin ice that you can break through in order to get into this flight, fight or flight because yeah. you've told your body that this is the peak stress that i get so this peak stress is like holy fuck and that's what your body thinks oh fight or flight that's when i go into it so yeah. unless you subject yourself to a a a whole bunch of different types of stress. It's like a vaccine. And willing to, yeah, it's, it's exactly. <laughs> it's, it's a vaccine. You have to do that. Otherwise, your dumb body is just going to do whatever it wants to do. So, is that like a direct implication on anxiety? You think? Yeah, I think it so. could be. I think that's probably in part why. I actually, I don't know about anxiety going up, but I know depression's going up in the Western world. Yeah, if you read Jonathan Haidt's new book, Coddling of the American Mind. I've only heard him talk in Rogan. Yeah, I mean that's where I'm quoting. It from, but a lot of that has to do with this idea that um, by being able to compare ourselves to anyone else in the world who has more than you at a very young age, because like they, he would do studies or parallelize it with like tribes in like developing world where they have very little internet access and things like that, and then all of a sudden they get cell phone technology with all of the uh, social media, and all of a sudden 
at first, their entire worldview is like, oh, everyone's like me and my tribe. You know, we don't have a lot of belongings. We don't have cars. We have very limited technology. And all of a sudden, it's like they pull the eye shades off. And all of a sudden, they have this whole more world. And it's they find out that instead of being, you know, level playing field, so to speak, they are rock bottom, more or less. Right. Mm-hmm. Because you compare where your position is relative to the rest of yeah. the world, right? Like, how else do you know where you are if not relative to something? Yes. That's that's another issue I have with utilitarian ethics is John Stuart Mills was a firm believer that someone in poverty was guaranteed to be less happy than someone rich. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people that I, I, don't, I don't believe or disagree or anything with that. I, whatever. But, you know, to say, like, no, you don't have as much as this person, so you're sadder. Like, and that, uh, yeah. you know, well, because you don't have an iPhone, you. you're not as fulfilled as someone who is outside and maybe more present than you kind of thing. Yeah, it's kind of a weird problem. I mean, one is that I think that people overestimate what money can do in a lot, yeah. of, in a lot of senses. Like, once you make $75,000 a year, I think it is. It's like, yeah, 70, 75. Then... What they found is basically any more money is going to make you any more happy. And quality of life doesn't improve. Yeah, it doesn't actually improve. It's just all that ends up happening is basically like... You have more to blow. You just have more <laughs> shit, but nobody gets any happier. Mm-hmm. It's like, is okay. it really that low? Yeah. yeah, it's very low. Surprising. Yeah. Well, it's because you basically hit the point where yeah. you can mitigate any stressors, like bill paying. Like your standard level of living. Like, like you know you're going to Food, survive. water, clothing, home. What? Like your basic needs. And then it's like anything else that you're spending that money on is just material shit. And material shit doesn't have any great value. Yeah. Is what it comes down to. Is it all the things you can buy with money really aren't that fucking great? What do they consider material though? Like as a vehicle? Yeah, like material. things you buy that mm. like don't as a house material. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like but people, like people who are really, really like rich. Like Johnny Depp is a great example where mm-hmm. he's got like fifty okay. houses or something, like an island or something. Yeah, he like owns. He just buys like astronomically expensive things because. Johnny Depp also beats his wives. Don't forget that he's not a good guy. I'm it's not trying to say he's a good there. guy in any way, yeah. but don't forget. I'm just saying, like, there's a point where you just have so much money that it just doesn't do you anything. Yeah, it doesn't do you any good. And is what it comes down to. It just hits a, it, it, which makes sense, right? Because everybody knows, like, the old colloquial, like, why not even wives' tale. Just that normal common sense has been passed down that it's like you're not going to get happy by finding material things. Yeah. Like by buying mm-hmm. shit, it's not going to fucking make you happy. So, and that's just what happens is that people have a ton of money and there comes yeah. a certain point where the the things that they were stressed about are all limited all the same. Once you make over 75000 everybody can limit the amount of bills that they're making. Everybody can have a nice enough house where they're not stressed about how they're living or mm-hmm. whatever. And then that's it. And then everything after that is just totally superfluous. It's, it's just, just extra shit. It's just gravy on top, basically. What about, <laughs> what about the fact that, like, you know, monetary limits limit the lifestyle you could possibly have like uh you know one of my buddies was like you know the one form of freedom i really recognized was financial freedom once you can be in charge of your own stuff you don't have to be subservient you don't have to have a boss you don't yada yada you can be in charge of your own financial decisions and whatever decisions you make because you have the ability you're not limited like if you go out to a bar around here and it's a dive bar you can afford a three dollar beer but if the same beer is like 50 bucks somewhere else for some reason because it's in some location can you still afford that beer? And like someone is like, I can afford this beer anywhere I go. Kind of okay. That's so weird... there's a couple of things there. One is that money is relative though. Yeah. I mean, we took it off the gold standard, but even then gold is relative how much it, yeah. it's really worth. Right. So cost of 75,000 is an average cost of living yeah. differences. Right. So yeah. if you just 
parse that out by where you're living, that number I'm sure fluctuates depending on where you're living, just so you can survive. But the point is that you get to a certain amount of money and then you can just be mm. fine. I kind of want to, I just want to fight that. Like, not that I'm like, go oh, get rich. Everybody should be rich. Um, <laughs> but this, you know, there's people that will adopt debt because they're intellectual enough to understand that they're going to die and that that's not going to follow them. And they'll say, my limits are monetary. There's a lot of people that maybe if I'm talking out of my ass, you might know better than me. There's a lot of people that join the military to get free schooling. You know, yeah. that's a big number. They're saying, okay, I'm going to put my life on the line because I want to have this financial ability at my disposal. Essentially not financial, but you know, right, I, right. I'm limited because of the fact it's that a, I it's don't money for freedom's sake. Right? Exactly. So, with those trade-offs and stuff, people are literally redefining their lives. Like I was, I was raised like your entire life is you build a house of bricks. And if you lay one bad brick, eventually that'll crack and your entire house could be toppling down. And mm-hmm. there's people. And I'm like, I mean, seven year old me was like real receptive. I was like, yeah, never mess up about anything. And I definitely didn't live true to that. But <laughs> um, the key thing there is people who are openly like, yeah, I don't care if I rack up tons of debt. Like it's not, gonna fall into my kids the way things are run nowadays and i'm gonna get to live the lifestyle i want as long as i keep it balanced now at the end of the day you know they could be in their 50s and hit a wall and be like oh man i'm totally screwed but for the time being they what do we look up to as life experience like i'm not personally if i meet someone that's like studied abroad and gone to a bunch of other countries and sees all these different cultures i think they're way cooler than me and someone's saying, I'll rack up debt to go live that lifestyle because I couldn't if I didn't have the money. But now you have a system also where that's a totally different monster of like, you know, we're in debt and we're causing another bubble and all this crazy crap is happening behind the scenes. But in America, we've allowed the idea that you can rack up debt and still live the life you want to in a way. Well, I think that's a failure of the cultural moment. For I would agree with that 100%. But um, to speak to the point of money is freedom. Part of it, besides just the fact that it's freedom, that the happiness issue might be an issue of freedom from anxieties, potential things that could go wrong, so you make enough money so you don't have to worry about them. Um, But also, I, I almost wonder if the statistics don't take into account the fact that a lot of the people that are making that money are making that money in a corporate structure. So that you still, you may be making a ton of money. You may be making 100000 200000k a year. But if you're a doctor at a hospital, they're still the fucking director of that hospital that's breathing down your neck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're still a sur- If you're a surgeon, you still have to pay a fuckload just to cover your ass if something goes wrong in surgery. Yeah. There's a, you'll never escape the, the insane number of problems in some sense. But So there's that issue. And maybe that the right choice isn't to care about money at all besides what you can do in order to prevent any catastrophe financially um but instead pursue the whatever it is that you find passionate whatever it is that you would want to do if you had the freedom anyway that if you had the money that's the thing you would be doing so just go for that instead of going for the money so maybe it's travel like find a way to travel yeah. get a fucking Volkswagen bus or some shit and go around the country i don't know that's one thing so maybe the point, if the point is the freedom, make the freedom the point. Yeah. I think it's... Go ahead, Jordan. I was just going to say, I feel like that statistic, that initial one we brought up, makes the most sense in like a minimalistic viewpoint. But like kind of where we are, like in a capitalistic society, it's hard to look at it that 
like at that surface level you know what mm-hmm. i mean like things get raised and as like all these things happen and you know you know people make more and more money and stuff like that and mm-hmm. things get more and more expensive i feel like that number has to be raised with it because well even, i think even, it, it could well, be yeah it probably will but there, there's another point that i think you're excessive. getting at that is well for one let's take the the seventy five thousand dollar number and recognize that that's going to shift around with the inflation with whatever with Okay. Fine. Whatever reason, cost like of living. Arbitrary. Sure. <clears throat> yeah. It's just to, it's just to make a point that there is a point at which money no longer is good enough. Right. Where that just where everything just levels out. Okay. So the other point is there's a whole book whose name I can't remember. We can try to I'll mm-hmm. find it. Or we'll put in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's about violence actually increases when you're in. It's not when in poor neighborhoods. So you think poverty would increase violence? That's not true. What does increase violence is when poor is next to rich, when you can compare oh. yourself to someone and recognize that you're relative, mm-hmm. which is why I think that with the expansion of social media globally, we might find an increase in violence. I can see that. Because you can compare yourself to the entire world and everybody yeah. that's anywhere <clears throat> lower immediately has access to everyone that had all those 16 year old kids with the Lambo and the Rolex. Mm-hmm. And you can be yeah. like, fuck them yeah. and realize for which the, is so, which is such a, but and it's so shitty that we compare ourselves in that way to other people. But but isn't that like a, a not a failure, so to speak? But that isn't that some of the way of where we're not teaching culturally? We don't teach the right values in in a way. We try to, but I think we do it cheaply, right? Because like the because like a part of the whole thing that I've been going through with this like high performance mindset thing is this last check section I did uh, earlier this week was on culture basically and it's like how do you like what are the cultures that allow you and what are certain traits within your culture that cultures that you're around so be it work school friend groups family those kind of things what are those kind of things that you value that allow you to enter like into flow states or have just overarching positive benefits basically it's um, what they call there's like four um, qualities of culture or pillars of culture that they had mentioned, which I want to get right because I think it's really important. The it? do 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 crap. And of course, it's not saved on here. It's on my other laptop. But anyway, there's four pillars of culture, and I'll find that in a second. And it basically comes down to is you have accountability, um, purpose, and there's a third one that I'm blanking on currently, but basically it allows you to have the ability to feel well, basically art, like have a relationship that's building towards something where you feel purpose driven and you're able to articulate problems and be open enough that you can work together in an environment to succeed in general, but it's not closed off enough that you can't do it for other people. So this podcast is a microcosm of that. Because we're a small little cultural subsection that we're able to be purpose-driven in our own ways. You know, Jordan, you're a writer. Nick, you're doing this whole, you know, deep dive into, you know, ethics and morality. Joe, you do your psychology stuff. And it all comes in here in these really deep discussions. That with, That's what culture is built upon, is having these, you know, hallway discussions about these things. And how does, you know, we structure our environment in those things. It's not how you do it in a business meeting. It's how you do it around each other and how you build things up. Or even in our text messages, how we text each other and like, hey, I found this book. Or, hey, I found this thing. I thought you'd like it. 
stuff like that. It's almost the building of a network. Yeah. I don't know if it's exactly the... I mean, I guess it's a building of a culture. Or maybe the building of a culture requires yeah. the building of a network. Or a network. I'm pulling it up really quick because I want of a network emerges a culture. It's hard to say. I don't know. I'm not sure where to pick up from there. So, I know I just hit a lot of things on that. <laughs> um, it's the Mountain Dew Dana Carvey show. <laughs> I don't have any what? frame of reference. <laughs> of what that means? Just, just how's it going? <laughs> it's so it's. This is why we need a uh, we need a young Jamie. I know. Yeah. I'm I'm doing double duty. <laughs> There was something you said like five minutes ago that got me stirred up in my head. Uh oh. Do you remember what it was? No. <laughs> remember. Again, can you just backtrack? <laughs> I'm glad it's everything? not I'm glad it's not somewhere else. Well, I will say this that kind of seeing your guys' like since you guys have looked into this, you know what I mean, in one mm -hmm. way, one facet or another, from someone who's purely speculative about I guess the base point of what we're talking about, morality and stuff, is it really is just like, oh, well, I had a very skewed opinion i guess on it where i was just kind of like you know what's right or wrong and that mm -hmm. was kind of like a person you have a baseline right, right right but then hearing like well no this is that or you know um really puts it in perspective and it makes more sense now it's strange to me um what morality is in some sense and i think even stranger what how we intuit it yeah, in some sense, because mm -hmm. I don't trust the intuition at all, and I think that what I think that the intuition exists in some sense, but it's so easy to ignore or override that I the only so and the only thing that's popping up in my mind is some some sort of solution to this thing is has always been for me at least to just kind of watch myself because I'm so aware of how much is unconscious, like we talked about earlier, that when something makes me feel morally right or morally wrong not in like some you know, morally righteous way you know what i mean not like high horse but just like that feels right or that feels wrong that i try to pay attention to what that thing is and then try to understand what underlying motivations might be because sometimes what i'll find is a pattern of instead of a feeling what i thought was a feeling of it being right was in fact a some other misleading motivation and I go, Oh, and if I watch it a few times, like maybe in a different context or different situation, it'll happen. I'd be like, what's the common denominator here? And then I'll look and I go, Oh fuck. I'm just being a dick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I thought I was yeah. being decent, but in reality, I'm, this is the motivation. Mm -hmm. And you can watch yourself do that because, and this is something I've realized with dealing with other people too, especially people that are like a little off. Or a little like, you're like, what the fuck are you doing? It's like different. you say one yeah. thing and you do another or why you do two different things that look like they contradict each other. Contradiction, they don't exist. Contradictions don't exist. It's not in reality. So what mm -hmm. ends up happening, I mean, reality, I mean, I one like in, a lot. just in a simple sense, reality can't contradict itself. There is one reality. It can't be the antithesis of itself. There's one uh, whole thing. But, so, also, but you're wondering in motivations, right? So in the more I, I just think sense. like the subjectivity of your thoughts versus the objectivity of what actually happens. What happened happened. It doesn't matter what you think or whatever. What happened happened. Well, so what I'm getting at is that those contradictions still don't exist in in behavior. 
that if it looks like someone's being contradictory, especially to what they say, it's because what they say is actually wrong for their motivations. And if you have two different points that look like they're contradictory to each other, one way over there, one way over there, you're like, what the fuck? You're going in two different dif- directions right now. Like, yeah. how are you saying you're trying to go to point A when over here you're at point C and over here you're at point fucking D? Like, how are you going to pretend that you're going to point A right now? But what you find is that if you look at both of those things and you find the common denominator, they point directly to the motivation of that person. And they might not be saying what that motivation is, or they may say something that sounds nice, which is usually the case. They Mm -hmm. say something that justifies it to themselves, not even to you, to themselves. Yeah. But the underlying motivation will cause them to do things that look as if they're erratic, but they're not. They are consistent on the lower level. It's just on the high level, they look erratic. And that's it. So you can just watch people fucking do things that are totally crazy. And people will be like, well, she said this or he said that. But then they do this and I don't understand. But then the oh, other time they did this. And yeah. it's like, no, no, you don't get it. <laughs> they're not being – they are being perfectly consistent with the thing they're not willing to tell you. Mm-hmm. I, I think that goes back to that. Like, It's like what's not being said, right? Yeah, what's yeah. not being said is what's beneath the surface because that's what's directing the whole fucking thing. I think that goes a little bit into like, you know – you know what's again right is subjective correct moral whatever is subjective but the idea that you know the impact you'll have is it better to know the impact and still do it or not know and do it um that's uh i still don't well if you're building off of the premises that there is that all things are that all morality is subjective i still can't go along with that that's fair yeah like, right so i still think that there's an there is a reality that reality benefits certain behaviors and discourages mm-hmm. other ones the ones that benefit are functional yeah. they perform they continue on perpetuate and they get more and more realized mm-hmm. the longer and longer society upholds them and whatever um but to kind of branch off that question i think i'll bump shoulders with it by answering this way um is that i think that the better person is actually the person who is very much capable of doing the wrong thing is aware that they're doing the wrong thing or could do the wrong thing, might even want to, and then does the right thing anyway. Because the person who stumbles upon it is just stumbling upon it. And that's actually a problem of it, the problem of intent, right? The intent and the reason it's so important to recognize it is that it tells you what to expect in the future. And that... What do you mean by that? So if I have the intent of if I'm a psychopath and I'm only offered myself and my entire intent here just hook myself up. Now I might do something super fucking nice for you, but the intent isn't to help you out at all. So because that's the intent, you can make the assumption that me being nice to you isn't a reliable thing. That me looking out for myself is all that you can rely on. And maybe I'll help you, but that's just a consequence of me trying to hook myself up. So that's why intent is so important is because it allows you to predict future outcomes Mm -hmm. from that person and that person's behavior. So if there's a person who has every conscious or every unconscious motivation that they bring, make aware for themselves that to do the, the thing that they fucking want to, maybe they want to screw this chick over. Maybe they want to cheat on their girlfriend, right? They're like, fuck this. I want you to know my girlfriend. Like, oh, this is going to be so awesome. But they make the decision not to. That intent, the fact that they're willing to override their own programming, I think says more about a person than somebody who's not thinking about it at all and just falls into it because they don't even know their own motivations. 
Yeah. So the intent would be them wanting to cheat. No, the intent would be that they would be that even if they feel like they want to cheat, they, decide, they, not they decide not to. And that's important. Okay. So, okay. Awesome. This is where we differ in the Liam Neeson thing. Yeah. I wonder. Yeah. Okay. And I'm, yeah. I'm thinking <laughs> about this. I was wondering where that was going to yeah. come up. Because <laughs> no, like he was getting to the point I was going to say something and that is yeah. exactly where we differ. Okay. Makes sense. So what is your, I don't know if this was already covered in another podcast. Uh, me yeah. and Jordan talked a little bit about it, but Joe right. wasn't here. So yeah, he it's wasn't worth here. talking about it. Our discussion was through Facebook and mm-hmm. we kind of just decided we should just talk in person because yeah, you know how that on goes. Facebook. So, (laughs) yeah, but to give it a short summary about the Liam Neeson thing, for those who don't know, he came out, I mean, this is like a couple months ago Mm -hmm. now, but he came out and he, you know, revealed that he had this thought, one of his friends was attacked, um, sexually assaulted, and he had, and the only information he knew was that um, the attacker was African American, so his um, reaction to that was, I'm just going to go to a highly african-american era area area, and find someone and beat and most likely kill them so that obviously sparked a lot of controversy yeah yeah so it's a thing so me and joe um attempted to have a discussion yeah Yeah, yeah, and it just wasn't working (laughs) like we literally (laughs) were just talking about i mean we got into like a semantical it was like a like a we can we like can talk yeah. of semantics. I can I can lay out what I thought <laughs> You're because yeah. debating on semantics yeah. is really really. Funny. I'll try not to bring I'll try not to reference the Facebook conversation because right. for anyone listening, it's going to be they're going to be like, what, yeah, what are you talking, talking about? about? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'll lay out my position and then you tell me what you think. Okay. Because what this looks like to me is that this was a guy who grew up in the troubles in Northern Ireland. So this is when Protestants and Catholics are killing each other like crazy. It's one Protestant beats up a Catholic in the street. The Catholics hear about it. They go and firebomb a Protestant neighborhood. The Protestants fucking hear about that. They go and murder a couple dudes. Like, the whole thing escalated. And it was this kind of tribal warfare. It was, your fucking group did this to my fucking group. Whoa. So I'm going to fuck your group up. I did not hear So I think this. that what, yeah, that, I mean, that's, if you listen to his whole interview, he did a couple interviews I thought were interesting. But anyway, so what I think happened and what, and when he talks about, or tries to, I think he tries to say it, but he doesn't say it very well, was that so now he has someone that he cares about deeply raped. Now, he doesn't say who it is, but he ends up in a different interview mentioning that she died a couple years ago. So I actually think that it was his wife Hmm. because she ended up dying in a freak accident a couple fucking years ago. And I think that that's something that he deeply loved and he like mentions all that. Is this this what you're speculating on? That it's his wife? I'm speculating his wife. This is total speculation. Um, so it might not be, that's fine. I'm Whatever. Whatever. It doesn't matter, actually. I'm just wondering which part that you mentioned you were speculating on specifically. Speculating on it yeah. being his wife. Okay. And then he does what all the Protestants or Catholics are doing. What group is that guy from? What group are you from? Oh, it's a black guy. Okay. That's your group. Now I'm going to go for that group. And I'm going to, I'm going to do to your group what you did to me. And that's it. And he's playing that thing out. Now, I think the act is using race as a means for categorizing the target and that that's important to recognize. But the underlying intent is revenge for against any amorphous group. And that once that revenge got, it wasn't realized because he never did it, but he actually went to a priest like talked it all through and tried to like come down from the whole thing. Eventually did. Nothing ended up happening, thankfully. And then moved on from there. 
And because the revenge, which was the underpinning, it was like it was like the foundation upon which his behavior acted. Once that got removed, all those ne- negative behaviors came tumbling down. Right. And then mm-hmm. that's why I think that someone like that needs to have, and this was my primary point, that's even if he was an actual racist, like that was his point. That was the end and the goal, right? That's, that's the whole thing is he's out to get a certain race that he hates. Even that person, when they make a change, a substantive change, needs to have an avenue of redemption in the future so that they can come back into the fold. Right. And part of the reason for that is that if there is no way back in, then one, nobody's going to admit that they're wrong. Because yeah. I've if What's I admit point? that I'm wrong, then I'm fucked. Like, <laughs> I'll never make it back into normalized society. Right. Yeah. And then two, that if these people have changed then they, I think they actually deserve a place back in normal society. And I think they could actually, a lot of the times they could do a lot of good. There was some former KKK guy that ended up becoming, like becoming reformed and like works to dismantle the KKK now. And he did a whole Ted talk and they're making a movie on something similar to that. I forget. I forget exactly who it's about, but, uh, I'll put it in the show notes. I'll yeah. send it to you. I forget the guy's name, but uh, I don't know if it's the same thing, but there's something similar. A guy right. was in the KKK and, and like a small town and there's a, uh, um, like a black school shut down, so like a whole bunch of black students were getting moved to that to like a primarily a white school. Yeah, and the leader of the KKK was like in the group or something, and then like saw how bad it was when he was like in it actually and not separated from it. Right. That I don't know the whole story, but to my knowledge, he kind of reformed or mm-hmm. like grew out of that. Um. So. I will say I do think growth and change is important, and that has to be acknowledged. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't saying that he deserves to be, like... Ostracized? Yeah. Yeah, a non-person. Right. So it's important to say... It's important to look at it and say, but look where he is now, and he's not that same person who's grew from that. So in that point, right. I, we agree. Okay. So I had a feeling that that might be the case. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't... Like, when I put a status up, just to put it in perspective, it said Liam Neeson is canceled, and that was kind of a... That was more of a joke yeah. than it to be meant seriously. Right, right. But... That status was kind of in response to, like, the recognition of what he's saying he did. You know what I mean? So it's kind of, that's new information. People, all people react to things. You know what I mean? Right. We're talking about how the spine works and you just, yeah, you know, yeah. reactionary <laughs> impulse. I mean, it's yeah. a really, that's good, a, it's a it's great a really example, good example. Yeah. yeah. So it was just like, let people have their moment to say, wow, that was fucked up. Because it was. And to say yeah. that it wasn't, even though he may not be inherently racist, to say the act or the thought wasn't racist oh, is right. wrong. That's a, it doesn't matter the race yeah. or even if it was like change it to any scenario possible right. like a woman beat up his friend or something and now he wants to go beat up a woman like now it's sexist you know what I mean right yeah, so the like, whole thing is I'm and I'm not denying by any means that the whole thing is like six different kinds of fucked yeah. like yeah. this is exactly <laughs> there's no and the whole thing is just so bad yeah, <laughs> yeah it really is and it's, it's I, what I really didn't like and I said this on the podcast before I yeah. really didn't like how he brought the information up I don't like so he he was talking about his movie I forget the name of it but it's uh, the the premise I think is about revenge right and so the way he revealed the story was saying oh I've got to I became this character because I've dealt with revenge before mm. so I'm like you're using you this is when you want to come out with this story to to promote your movie like to me that's weird like oh i don't know if he is trying to promote promote his movie though well it was I, in I mean, promotion of his right. movie where the story came out yeah so did you listen to his 
his thing. I listened to just the initial one. I know he had more. Yeah, after. it was kind of weird. The initial one, it, it caught me almost like this unforeseen like moment of like almost guilt driven like Weird. supreme honesty like yeah there's no reason he ever had to fucking like, like he, he could have spared have himself this whole controversy like he's just doing not a therapy session almost. right it was like he got and he got asked and he just answered truthfully and brought that up and it was just like hmm. kind of like that was a little that was, was pretty real man it's like, <laughs> like what it's like when you ask yeah exactly you ask yeah. someone a question they give you and you're like wow like how are you doing today and they tell you everything yeah, they just like wow you're supposed on to you? say you're okay this is a fucking moment yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. we're supposed to move on past this <laughs> right? yeah so like on one end of the spectrum i really respect that he like wanted to tell that story in a mm. public forum you know what right. I mean? so yeah. on one hand i respect and the other hand i'm like that was a weird time yeah. you know what i mean like yeah. he could have he had so like countless other circumstances yeah. to be like i want to tell this story you know what i mean so that to me that was just weird that it was like around the promotion yeah. tour where they do yeah. all these it sounds like something movie. he should have done in a more structured environment of like hey here's the outline of this thing mm-hmm. this is what i'm going to be talking about let's not misconstrue this in any way right rather than just kind of blurt it out there and let yeah. other people because there's i mean m- other people are going to digest it in whatever way they see fit regardless right. but there's just going to be, you know, right. you know what I mean? Like, because it was blind, like, in, in the moment thing, I think it, it just allows more people to interpret it their own way. Right. Or take it in different lights. Yeah. Right. And it can be easily, and I think to your point is that it can be easily misconstrued as he's using this as a tool to drum up anticipation for the film right it's yeah like, and then i uh, i see yeah. where you're coming Which, from with that i don't know if that was what he wanted i'm not trying to say that but I, it was just like dude bad timing like your yeah. pr person should have been like don't say that you know what yeah. I mean? like, he should have run into that <laughs> fucking radio yeah. no, and I mean, slapped that, you yeah, like, <laughs> that pr person probably already having a meltdown yeah. oh that person was crying yeah. in booth. and i'm like dude just not now like you know what i mean he's like, probably like yeah like kill come him, on kill like him, him kill him so that's that's where i took I don't want to say offense, but I was kind of like, that was just weird. It was just yeah. very weird. So my this this was my issue with it, right? Let's just get to the bones of it. So my issue was he had a racially motivated and, you know, intent to commit an act. And thankfully he didn't do it, but the intent, the intent was there. So that's why I was saying our, well, that's why, I th- yeah, I think the intent is, I think the intent was revenge, but it wasn't race specific. But what about the race ended up com- being a framework placed on top of the right, revenge. and it was. But I, so I'm like I speak against any type of prejudice, no matter what it is. Right, it just happened to be. Yeah, and I wouldn't deny that it wasn't a race based, not based isn't quite the word, but race mode, not even motivated, race formulated strategy, something like that. That it the the race hmm. of the person clearly informed how he was going to go about this. Yeah, and to speak on how you were saying, you know, the, uh, I don't know, the Ireland, the, what we were saying they were going through, there was like, Catholic yeah, the first. troubles. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean, that whole thing that was going on is ignorant in itself. You know what right. I mean? And yeah. if he was a part of that in any way, then if he comes out with the story and says, oh, well, I was a part of that too, then it's like, okay, just as ignorant, you know? Yeah. For yeah. That, you know Absolutely. I mean? So it doesn't, the race doesn't matter. The person who would have been on the opposite end doesn't matter. But it's the fact that he was, naive and immature mm-hmm. at that point and yeah. he wasn't that young it's not like he was 16. he was in his late 20s yeah I he say. was a man he was an adult you know what i mean right. even if he was 18 you're an adult you know what i mean but even moving forward you're dude you know what yeah morals mm-hmm. you know what's right and wrong at this point mm-hmm. 
So that's where I took a stance and said, yeah, it makes sense that people want to distance themselves from him. Like I get their logic, but at the same time, if he did recognize that he was wrong and took steps to kind of work through that, then yeah, he should be forgiven. You know what I mean? Now, I don't know if he took, so the steps he took might be different than what people say was sufficient. If that makes sense. I feel like he, I don't know if he met with people from like groups or stuff. Like I feel like, Trevor Noah said this, but he's like, dude, like you went on this show, you know, in this interview for your movie. He's like, I would have been like, damn, that was dope if he was on Oprah. <laughs> I was like talking to yeah, Oprah about, you know that. what I mean? Uh, okay. And I'm like, talk to someone who's part of the group that you were going to harm for no reason other mm-hmm. than, you know what I mean? So that's where I'm coming from. Like, yeah, you may have worked to improve it, but is that sufficient? Did you watch the Good Morning America interview? I, I don't that know. One's that one's worth watching. Is it? Yeah. I don't think I It was that after one. the whole thing kind of blew up. Oh, yeah. I didn't watch that. Yeah. One. Can I clarify something? Because to mm-hmm. me, it seems like I don't want to speak for either of you, but it sounds like, especially bridging the gap between intent is what the main idea that brought this up is. It sounds like, Joe, you're focusing on the intent of what he did when he was 18. And it sounds like Jordan is more interested in his intent of delivering the story and why. Is that incorrect? No. That's. No, that sounds, less, right? that sounds about right. Okay. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I'm just kind of focused on the motivations yeah. behind the behavior in and of itself. Yeah, right. and yeah, like we can all recognize that yeah. it was totally screwed that yeah. he just went out in the streets. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely is. But again, it's not like he was just woke up one day and was like, yeah, I'm just going to go kill a black dude. You know what I mean? Yeah, that right. would be different and it would be harder to justify. Right. Yeah, then, you know then it'd mean? be like... Yeah, like, no, that's crazy. But, like, something, yeah. so something did spark that. So, mm-hmm. like, I understand that, and I know it's, you know, so there's a lot to it. And I, I do think, I mean, I love the actor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think he, I and know. I think he's inherently a good person. He was just in a state of immaturity. And it's kind of like, now yeah, and that in a people, rough fucking place, too. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, even, I mean, the, the, it, it's a shame in some sense that, that the race portion came into it, like that that was even a part of the conversation because this would be such a more interesting and easier thing to navigate without that. Right. But just so we could talk about as a culture, like look what happens like to what is normally a nonviolent person when something goes so wrong. Right. Like you can mm-hmm. totally, that sounds like, it sounds like the plot of a fucking movie. Right. You're, yeah. Someone you deeply care about gets raped and you go out for revenge. Yeah. It's like, it sounds like a fucking movie. I mean, it sounds like John Wick. About sounds that. like right? a movie he was in, Taken. Like it's like, yeah. you're, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, it does sound like John Wick. What, not a dog. Right. <laughs> I mean, like, right. <laughs> what bothers me, not bothers, irks, makes me think, is people are entirely capable of growing, and it's where I don't, I don't know if I want to call it toxic, but it's a little bit interesting. And like when someone gets to a point and they've possibly grown, and then some skeletons from their closet are brought up to screw them and ruin their platform. Not even just to like bring it up; it's it's with intent to do yeah. something wrong to them, something that happened decades ago. But the issue with that, though, is would they have the platform that they currently do if the information that's now arising was known decades ago? Would that have inhibited their, um, their status or yeah. their, you know, their popularity if it was raised then? Like, would you still have the the, the podium that you do? So would Liam Neeson, and I'm not going to lie, I do think he still would based on how things were a long time ago. Uh, yeah. You know, and yeah, but you know, with some of this kind of stuff is like, you know, would you still have the podium that you do if that information was known when your career started versus now that you have a status to say these things and come out like, Oh, I feel vindicated, you know? Yeah. Right. So that, that was kind of where my point was where like you wouldn't like 
you wouldn't have said this 20 years ago when your career is just starting to boom and be like, oh, I'm going to tell this story. <laughs> Realistically, you're not going to say that. And yeah. that's kind of where I was like, it's a weird time to say it. You know what I mean? Because you have nothing to lose, more or less. Yeah. Um, rather than a couple months of people saying you're canceled. Yeah. But you still get jobs. You I know don't know. I mean? so. After listening to a couple of the interviews, though, I, I get what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And I don't. And I could get, I think the context all around was bad. Like, yeah. this is, cl- I don't think this is, like, this is clearly kind of not planned out. And that's part of the fucking problem here is yeah. that this was not planned out. So there's so much, it's like, you're right about the whole, like, the off the cuff kind of, you're promoting this during, you're talking about this during a movie promotion? Like, right. This is not the fucking time. Like, right. Agree. We're on the same page. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, I forget where I was going. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So I wonder if that's like, something that was like, you know, in the back of him and he was like, this is my chance to be honest about it and go into it with confidence and realize that I'm a different person and that I made mistakes and this is who I am because of those mistakes. I don't know. Yeah. It was just some kind of like jerk. A lot like, of his motivation. I'm going to do it. I think that's what it is. And this is part of why I'm more forgiving for him than mm-hmm. I would for other people was the way that he talked about it after the fact. And it came across to me as very much, and this is the point I was trying to get to, it came across to me that it was very much a person who was aware that they had fucked up and had come to terms mm-hmm. with that. Yeah, right. Like yeah. you can tell when an apology, especially nowadays, because there's so many of them, that sound, when an apology sounds manufactured. Did he mm-hmm. apologize? Yeah. Well, he talked about the whole thing. I don't know if he apologized for talking about it. I think he was remorseful of the situation. Right. right. So it... I mean, I don't know exactly. You can apologize to the community at large, I suppose, yeah. and for disappointing fans. But but it didn't catch me. When he talked about it, it wasn't this manufactured Logan Paul on fucking, oh, I'm sorry, to that <laughs> prank. Yeah. Uh, let's fake up tears on YouTube. Like right. It was very much seemed like a mature adult talking like, I was a bad person then, and I did terrible things, and I am aware of that. And that because of that kind of self-awareness, I was more willing to be... And he's not making excuses either. Right. And yeah, that's right. another thing. There was no real excuse there. It was kind of... I mean, he talked about the troubles, but he never said that that's the reason why I did this. Like, that was never a point of it. And he even talked about how how horrified he was when he, like, woke up to his own behavior and went, holy fuck, what am I doing? Like, mm-hmm. this is insane. Yeah. So, like, that's another thing. Like He was in that fight or flight. And you're probably right. <laughs> no, yeah. no, you're probably yeah. for sure right. And that yeah. he went straight up tribal. Like that's mm-hmm. that's yeah. straight up tribal part of the brain that's playing. It's going yeah. my tribe in group got attacked, attack out group. Mm-hmm. That's right. what it was doing. I mean that I think that's what I really liked about uh that same week that Sam Harris was on Joe Rogan and they yeah. talked about how basically blood blood wars start, you know, where my brother was killed by another tribesman and so you go kill mm-hmm. him and right. then it just perpetuates yeah. over generations and all of a sudden you go, you know, 10 That's, generations removed and you have tribes that hate each other and are always yeah. at war and they don't even remember why, but they just but do. Yeah. See, that's, you know? that's really funny because the way I've looked at war from a an uninformed, I'll just call it that, but like this idea of war is like, okay, one dictator or one leader and another leader disagree. So they're going to have a bunch of guys that under, under them kill each other and be like, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to screw your resources. So whatever happens, you're in my way. I'm in your way. Whoever has the most men standing at the mm-hmm. end of this or the most resources to survive takes over is going to be the one that gets to decide. Right. Yeah. So you have two leaders saying this is why we're all killing each other. But it's funny to think about a blood war in that sense of like two random people from different sects of whatever just 
one of them died at the hand of another, and now it's not leaders; it's just a response by a group. Revenge saying, cycle. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Like it's self perpetuated. It emerges turns. like you can have bottom yeah. up warfare. But I guess that now makes me think about just nationalism and the ability to like tweak that and be like, "You love your country, right? Go do this for me," kind of yeah. thing. I don't know. I think there's bot- there's probably bottom up and top down. Things yeah. Going on. So you can have an emergent desire for war from the population. Yeah. It's like this blood war type thing, and then you can also have this kind of top down enforcement of whatever mm-hmm. and i think world war one is probably closer to the top down yeah. where it's like yeah. oh, there's a bunch of leaders all have allies and then everybody just gets dragged into it and it's right. like everyone just likes their country so they're mm-hmm. like all right fuck it we're well, i guess this, we're this going what we're fucking doing yeah. now yeah. Yeah. world war ii would be the opposite i would say yeah world war ii i think was the opposite mm-hmm. i think that that was an intense amount of resentment on the side of the german people who yeah. just wanted to burn they were pissed yeah and then hitler just sees the little flame mm. there shows up with some fucking gasoline and like a little like fan and he's yeah. like well, let's go bitch and then yeah. everybody's like yeah let's yeah. fucking go and then they, they wanted any excuse to yeah well yeah you know, i mean just anger i mean it's it's funny thinking about context of history there because it's the sins of the past paying forward to cause world war ii in some ways because yeah. the yeah. end of world war one and the world basically shitting on Germany and leaving yeah, it in Yeah, that's what's room. so crazy is that the world took revenge on Germany. Yeah. So Germany eventually tried to take revenge on the world. Yeah. It's like, this is why. This is, and it's the same problem with the blood sport shit that was going on in Northern Ireland. It's, just on a larger scale. It's, yeah. yeah, it's just on a larger scale. It's yeah. you fucked. You're taking revenge on us, the Protestants. We're going to take revenge on you, the Catholics. And it's that yeah. same psychological mechanism on a broader scale. And yeah. It's like, holy fuck. So you got to. This is why personal introspection is so important. So yeah. you can catch yourself when you have that feeling. You can go, oh, I know what that is. Yeah. I'm not I mean, that's just, that. I mean, you can apply that to anything we do today. Like today's world of like mass experimentation is technology mm-hmm. and specifically inter- internet-based technology and how we all have, you know, this thing in our pocket is playing psychological experiments on every one of us without them even really realizing it, you know? all these apps, all these things that are distracting us, all these lights, all these, just all this, everything that we have every day is they made them and they didn't know what they were going to do, but we have them now and now we have to deal with them, you know, and we won't know what happens with those things probably for until 10, probably 10 more years. We'll have a better footing of what's actually going on psychologically or larger scale. So I, I think about that a lot because <laughs> I'm so close to technology as, as an engineer. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like, I mean, I feel like it does come down to individually having a strong moral code. I mean, not to, you know, I mean, I am bringing it back. Right. To like I mean, it's important. Yeah. That's kind of like, what I was trying to aim for. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, you have to have your own strong moral code. So I was talking to a friend, a mutual friend of ours about um, going into the career he wants to go into. I don't want to put him out there. I'd, want, I'd rather him kind of yeah. explain his thinking. So I'll, be vague about it, but he was saying how if he had a superior tell him to do something and he disagreed with it, he would still do it to not, um, you know, openly disagree with his superior mm-hmm. in the public sense. And I was like, that's really tricky. And like mm-hmm. in some instances, yeah, but you have to have your moral code where if you see something that's just wrong ethically yeah. to be like, yeah, I know like we're on the same team here. But that's wrong, and I'm not going to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's extremely important. I, you know I, what I mean? I do think 
it, it was expanded. Yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah, I, I do think it was expanded a little bit. Like you know, it's it's one thing if they're like, "Hey, slaughter these people," like mm-hmm. you know. But I think it was more within limitation. But still, yeah, yeah you you, yeah. you have to. At what point do you stop abiding by your ethics at the cost? I think really realistically at the cost of your career, not at the cost of the reputation, but the impact <laughs> or the consequences of you know attacking someone's reputation or publicly shaming their opinion or orders. Right. But mm-hmm. can I take a tangent? Can I? throw something at you guys why not okay um what about the idea of not maybe not self-interested but the benefit the self-benefit of being empathetic like the idea of i know you know in another podcast joe you had mentioned about you know empathy or whatever altruism altruism yes uh expanding because you want to protect that podcast you know your by the way Hmm? it was awesome just oh, yeah, plug. Well, yeah. um, you know, but, <laughs> but, you know, that idea that altruism is kind of backed by the want to keep your own genes alive. Mm-hmm. And also like, just like a little traffic metaphor, like, you know, if someone cuts in front of you in traffic and starts slowing down, you could sit there and get angry and not react and keep speeding and being like, why are you doing this? Riding their butt. Or instead you could recognize maybe they got in my lane so quickly because they have a turn to make and they're slowing down because they have a turn to make. And now you can accommodate that and say, oh, I'm going to slow down too because they're taking a turn. Mm -hmm. You know, just the self-benefit of like, and you can see that in a social way. It's like, oh, maybe someone has this past and this is the way they react that way. So instead of me getting so stressed out and making assumptions about them, I can maybe help strengthen our relationship by kind of like pulling in those factors and again the 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 benefit to maybe you as well and the benefits of everybody around that idea of being empathetic not just i want to give you cupcakes or i want to give money to this charity and like you know it might not come right back into your lap but the idea of like you know how that empathetic intelligence can affect your day-to-day interactions and Mm -hmm. stuff like that i don't know if y'all have any thoughts on that i i really enjoy that (laughs) honestly and kind of goes back and so i found the quote that i was looking for before with the culture thing because I think it ties really well into that ethic-based stuff. And me and Jordan talk about ethics all the time on this yeah. podcast. It's kind of like one of our cornerstones right now. Yeah. <laughs> and so the the cultural thing is, so it's got the three pillars is cultivate a sense of belonging, culti- or develop trust through accountability, and then foster a purpose-driven environment. So, I mean, it doesn't really work in the traffic example, but in, mm-hmm. in, in general, I think if we can kind of shift the overall viewpoint in turning a culture into or a sense of wealth being in relationships where you can connect with other people and generate that empathetic be like oh wow I, like just being able to hear someone else's story and be like oh shit i never would have expected you to go through all that mm-hmm. which by now you'll feel you've heard one of those stories <laughs> from someone part of this group once this episode's already live um and it, it's one of those things that I think is really powerful about the human experience in general is where you can kind of take a the the microcosm of a singular person's experience and then you can look at it and be like, wow, holy shit, I would mm-hmm. never expect your story. And then you can see where the parallels of your own struggles map into that. Yeah. Or even if you've never experienced it, it kind of you can kind of put it yourselves in their shoes because it's coming from them. Yeah. So you can listen to it in, in a, a different way. Yeah. That kind of, I don't know, that makes me think of like sociology, like not to buy excuses for anybody. Like there's like I had a sociology professor one time be like, there's people on the other side of the world that make less money and get treat worse than how we, some people pamper their dogs. Right. And that, and I immediately was like, but yeah, like, is anybody treating their dog that well, somehow responsible? Like, are those people making that dog food and they're supporting a brand? And he was like, no, this is just a comparison. So there's that, like, you know, you, you can't, you can't necessarily like immediately take action on that, but also- no. 
you know, oh, there was another thing. I'm way too ADD. This caffeine's not doing good. Um, <laughs> you need another hit. <laughs> maybe that's what it is. Um, no, um, but also, no, yeah, the idea that, like, sociology can help explain a lot of things. Yeah. Like, if someone grows up under certain circumstances, nine times out of ten, that's going to happen. And once you see those things, is it up to society to make a change? Or is it up to you to like, does anyone owe anyone anything there kind of thing? Or like, Mm -hmm. at what point is it, is this so perpetual that it becomes factual, you know? Yeah. And not to, again, not to buy people excuses, but to say like, okay, if you grow up under these circumstances, it's extremely likely that these things might happen for you or happen to you or something of the sort. Yeah. I don't know. It's a weird I mean, you're touching on an interplay that we've kind of been bouncing off of throughout this whole conversation, yeah. which is just how, what influences moral behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned that the societal world nurture mm-hmm. plays a big part, and it does. And nature, your genetics, your biology, your Also brain, plays a big part. <laughs> plays a big part. But what I think, you can't control either of those is what it comes down to. You can't control either of them. You aren't in control of your genetic makeup. You're not in control of the entire world. You can't change society by yourself. Not going to happen. Um, but what you can do is make the small changes and navigate those two things. And if you want to change, you put yourself in environments that demand it. That's how you change. So that you can't really change your genetics, but yeah. the environment can actually change your genetics. Mm-hmm. Epigenetics is starting to show that you'll have an interplay where the when you go into a new environment, it will turn on coding for new genetic strains, mm-hmm. strings of information, and cover up other ones so that you can better adapt to that situation. So what you can do is change your environment. And what do you mean about you? Like change it for someone else, seeing the byproduct of what that environment has caused? Because you, again, back to like, you know, a five-year-old can't be like, I want out. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, this is something you're probably not going to do as a kid. Um, but but again, a, are you doing it for you? I get like, I guess you can change who you the, hang out with. Yeah. Yeah. So you can change who you hang out with. You can change um, jobs. Let's say you know that you're not a particularly social person. Then get a job that requires to become a waiter. And that's going to suck for months. It's probably mm-hmm. going to exhaust you, and mm-hmm. I wouldn't do it long term, but you can learn. Like three months or two months. You can learn a lot during that time. And you can actually teach yourself to make up for the things that you're lacking otherwise. And that that's important. And that you can also just, in the small sense, just change your immediate environment, your house. If you're disorderly, learn to just be one step at a time. I'm just going to make sure that when I finish eating dinner, I'm going to actually wash the dishes instead of let them pile up. I'm just, mm-hmm. that's it. That's all I have to worry about. And then one step at a time, yeah. you'll get better and better and better at all the things that you're doing. It's every skill you have isn't something that you just get handed on a silver platter. You have mm-hmm. to foster it. It is a muscle that you have to work out in order for it to grow, including moral practices. Being a moral person yeah. requires that you practice being moral. You're not just, nobody has ever been a hero in war or (laughs) like the guy, there's some Marine that was at a school shooting and tried to tackle the the shooter, ended up dying in the process, which is a shame. But but those people weren't born that way. Yeah. They weren't turned into that necessarily just by the environment either, that Mm -hmm. they were in situations or practiced being 
that kind of person mm-hmm. so that when the situation arise, they just acted like mm-hmm. they normally would. Yeah. And that's yeah. it. I think the one of the greatest examples of this, at least in the current era, is David Goggins. Um, I listened to his book, his audiobook, and it's crazy. I mean, the guy is, I mean, he's a Navy SEAL or ex-Navy SEAL, so he's an animal. But when you listen to his whole story, um, he grew up in an abusive home and had a father that basically beat him. And he was like, basically scarred him for life for many, many reasons why he has the drive he does. Um, but he wound up putting himself through and he's like, many times I could have been a statistic where he was overweight, you know, eating terrible food, not working out, not even doing anything. He was like, I think he was working for Ecolab for a while. And then he saw a commercial for like one of those things that on the Discovery Channel or whatever for the, the Navy SEAL boot camps that they had a couple of years ago. And he saw one of those and he's like, I want to be one of those people somehow. And he, the next day he called recruit and said, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL and like just figured it out. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I'm really paraphrasing here, but basically his story kind of goes through and then he got an ultra running after he was done with his mil- military career. And he, I think for a little while he was doing ultras, which are like multi hundred mile races basically on foot in as fast as you can do it or like 24 hour period. And he basically finds out after doing one of them that he had a hole in his heart. He's born with it. <laughs> and so here's a person who's already been the top military, you know, specimen, both a ranger and a Navy SEAL. And he did all of these things with a hole in his heart. And if the military had known, they would have disqualified him from the outset. Because when you have a hole in your heart, there's a chance that you have unoxygenated blood going into oxygenated blood and you have an air bubble, basically. And you will die instantaneously. And especially because as a Navy SEAL or a special operator, you're jumping out of planes and you're going deep underwater and all that stuff. So outside of all of this, it just kind of proves that the human brain has a lot of untapped potential (laughs) along with what Joe's saying, where you change your environment and you just say, I'm going to do X and you can figure out a fucking way. (laughs) I like it. Yeah, I paraphrased a lot of that, but yeah. it's totally worth getting the book. It's one of my favorite books. I would listen to it while I'm at the gym, and it fires me up. <laughs> so, Hey, Joe, when you uh, talked about cleaning plates to change your behavior, yes. what was on those plates? Oh was it God. a heaping helping of curiosity? Dear God. Mm. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. What's the fucking... Which, which hit one? the button that did you... Yeah, that <laughs> <shit>. <laughs> I think we're gonna end it on that one. Oh, because we gotta go hit the gym. All right. How and, long uh, was it? We're at a uh, hour and forty-two. That's not bad. Yeah, it's a good time. How about you guys hit the gym and I'll just talk. I'll be here. Just I'll keep it recording. <laughs> I'll do be a here. slow jam. Session. I was I was meaning to do stand up, and it's way cooler if I don't have to look oh, at my and audience. Then, so. And then and then I'll just I'll just hit. You can tell jokes. Every 10 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> Just have it louder than my voice. <laughs> Everything's out of context. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, See ya, everybody. Bye. You just listened to an episode of Feeding Curiosity. Thank you all for listening and tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a like, subscribe. Go check out the website over at feedingcuriosity.net and all the other things that we're doing there. And once again, thank you all for tuning in and we will see you in the next episode.